We are in John chapter 17. It's page 903 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We're going to begin reading in verse 14, which comes in the middle of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus is saying, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. As I worshipped this morning, things went through my mind and uh, thoughts about different things. And one of the things that happened to go through my mind, and it's always a little dangerous off the cuff to talk about these things, but I think it's it warrants doing that. Um, I just I just want to affirm our worship team this morning. Um, partly what spurs that is is I want to affirm God beyond that. Um, some of you have been with us through the whole transition from the old church to the new church. Some of you are newer than that and so have not been in that transition that's now been about 10 or 11 years ago when we made that transition. But it was it was keenly obvious at that point that that we needed to do something different in in just how how we would facilitate worship um, musically in the church and things were changing and that was just coming to that point where that would have to be done. And uh, I just marvel sometimes to, to, to realize how God worked on our behalf. We talk about that text. In fact, this morning we have our booklets out in the foyer uh, from our annual meeting and I welcome you to take those. But for a number of years now, I've just declared in that the ways God has worked in our behalf in the past year. And this one's not in there, but it's certainly the way God has worked over time, over the last several years, but in in our worship team. And what makes me say it this morning is, this morning you may have noticed Dan McCarlson is not here this morning. Dan typically plays with the worship team most every week, and he's not here this morning. And the reason he is not here is because I heard this morning that Sovereign Grace Church in Aberdeen was out without worship people this morning to play. And so Dan consented to go there and help them lead in worship. But I remember a day when we couldn't have done that. We couldn't have shared our people to to other places because we needed it here. And uh, I marvel at how God has raised that up. And I appreciate Matthew and his leadership in in developing that worship team and various ones of you participate in that just I appreciate the way you do it I appreciate it's not about you but it's about God being magnified and I'm just grateful for that and I think it warrants just another way that sometimes just God is working on our behalf as we wait for him and look to him when 11 years ago we did not know what we were going to do when we were transitioning from the old church to the new church and God brought Matthew home Matthew home to to live here and to live in our community and to be raised up to do what he does each week as he leads the worship team, whether he's here or not here. He's he's undergirding that and making sure that it happens. So, so I'm grateful for that this morning and thought we should say it. This morning, let's look at the text now. And uh, some of you will notice that we went back to the same text. It's the same one that we read last week because I just feel like we didn't fully unpack all of that and say everything that needed to be said. 
And so I want to go back to it this morning. But just over the last few weeks, just the things that we've been talking about, specifically the way which Jesus prayed for his disciples, and in turn for those who would believe because of the word of the disciples, which is us. So these are prayers for us. And one week, the first week we talked about, he prayed that we would we would have the same joy in us that he had in himself, and that we would be people who who would be characteristic and known by our joy, uh, a deep-seated joy, a joy that is not surface-oriented, but that goes deep and runs deep. And the root of his joy, we looked at it last week, or I I referenced it last week again to you in verse 5, where it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I think the joy he's talking that he wants his disciples to have is the joy that he had with the Father and is being restored back to him as he goes back to the Father. The the joy of reconciliation, the root and the foundation of our joy this morning, no matter what mood or condition you came into this service this morning, I hope at some level that that your joy was stoked, not in external circumstances, whatever you may have brought into this service because of external pressures of a broken world, but but in the heart of what we did, heart of the songs we sang and the prayers we prayed and, and the scripture we read, that somewhere in there was opportunity for your joy to be stoked in the fact that God has reconciled you to himself, that he has caused you to embrace the light, if you will, as we talked about in our prayer time, that, that he who once we were an enemy of, we now have a place at the table. I mean, those are the kinds of things that week to week as we come for corporate worship that I hope stoke your joy, even in the midst maybe of some incredibly difficult circumstances you find yourself in. I think Jesus knew that what he wanted to pray for his disciples is that they would have joy in the midst of a broken world, a joy that the world could not fully understand until they embraced the light. And I hope that's true for you. I think that's what Jesus was praying in that particular prayer. And then last week, we went to the idea that he not only prayed that they would have joy, that kind of joy, but they also would be a people who would be sanctified. Um, look at it in verse 19. It says, um, he, Jesus says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, or really what we talked about last week, he, he could have used the word, I sanctify myself, because they're synonymous ideas, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Both the word consecrate and sanctify come out of the same root words of holiness, the, the idea of holiness. But Jesus says, I sanctify myself or I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. And we talked about what it means for us to be sanctified in truth. What was he praying when he said that? What was Jesus talking about? I think he was talking about two things that we made a point to, to drive home, I hope, last week that you took with you. And those two things were that we would become a distinct people set aside for a mission. The idea of sanctification here in this sense is that that they would be sanctified in truth, they would, they would become a distinct people, a unique people who were made distinct for a mission that was to be accomplished. Both of those things together. Now, Jesus, in this sense, says an interesting thing. He says, 
and for their sake, I consecrate myself or I sanctify myself. Now, I don't think Jesus was praying that I would become distinct. He was fully God. That's a definition of who God is. He is distinct. He's distinct. He's different. He's other. In fact, he's the ultimate other in that sense of, of the world. So he didn't, he wasn't praying that he would become a distinct person here. He already was. He was fully God. But he was praying the second part of that. He would, he would be distinct and fulfill his mission. What he says, I sanctify myself or I consecrate myself to the mission that the Father has sent me to do. So that therefore a people could be made distinct and accomplish the mission. A mission. So you see that text, that's what he's saying, that's what he was praying, that we would become a distinct people and a distinct people for the purpose of the mission that God has called us to. They go together. Now the, 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 the danger of that whole eye of distinction, if you get it wrong, because sometimes people would, would say that they'd be a separate people for mission. And the idea of separate is okay, that's been a concept of what it means in some ways to be sanctified. But the danger of the connotation is that some people have taken the word separate and and become monkish in it. That that the whole idea of sanctification is that we separate ourselves. We separate ourselves from the culture. And and what we do in that is we short circuit, I think, what the prayer was. The prayer was not just to be separate, but that's why I like the word distinct, but to be distinct for a mission, not to separate from the culture. In a sense, but to engage the culture, to, to embrace the culture with that, dist- and taking that distinctiveness to it. To infect the culture with that distinctiveness is what I think is being prayed here. Um, because in verse 15, look what it says. It says there, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, the idea of sanctifying a people, separating them unto yourself, God doing that, I think the word distinct is better because the idea is that they're distinct for a purpose, not to separate, not to get into a holy kind of huddle over here and and put protectors around them, but rather to be a distinct people so that they then are ready for mission to take that distinction to our culture. And we talked about last week the ways in which that distinction ought to manifest itself. These were not original for me. In fact, they came out of that Sunday school series that we were involved in, the titles that I give you here. But I, but I use them to kind of define what that distinction is, what that separateness, some people use the word separateness, but, but I think distinction is a better word. And, and these are the things. We are a joyful people in a suffering world. Christians ought to be a joyful people in a suffering world. I mean, you come in, that's what I meant today. You can come in with, with things pushing on you and pressing on you just because of life. But in the midst of that press, there is a joy that gets stoked within you because of the gospel. A joyful people in a suffering world, a generous people in a stingy world. We need to be a generous people. The world is stingy. The world is about me. And we're to be a generous people in a stingy world, a truthful people in a confused world, that there's a, just a steadiness about us, a truthfulness about us. In a confused world, a world that's looking to, to find truth, in a sense, even though they would deny that. 
and a serving people in a selfish world. All of those things, all of those things are what that distinctiveness was. That's what Jesus was. He was a joyful in a suffering world. I mean, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, there was a joy in Jesus. The joy he had, he wants us to have. Even though he was about to embrace some horrific things in the next hours. He said, I want the same joy I have now, knowing what's coming, to be in you. He was a joyful person in a suffering world. He was a generous person in a stingy world. He was a truthful person in a confused world. And he was a serving person in a selfish world. And he wants his people to be the same. And the way that happens, and and then we're going to move on. The way it happens is by the, the word. If you look at this, how does, how does that happen? How do we become distinct? And the distinction comes and it grows in us by the truth. Look at, it says, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. In, with the word. It's the word of God that sanctifies us. As we allow that word to wash over us, it causes us to be distinctive. It causes us to listen to those voices, the voice of God in his word by the Holy Spirit taking that and applying it to our lives that causes a distinctiveness. Now, this morning, what I want to do is to to emphasize the second half of that. We talked a little bit about it last week, but we're not distinct for distinct purposes alone. We're not separate for separate purposes alone. That turns rancid if that's the case. It, it, it just doesn't work. We, we are to be a distinct, a separate, if you will, people that we might fulfill a mission. We are, we are made that, that we can go into the world and embrace the world with that distinction and cause the world, as we closed last week, to ask the answer for the hope. It causes them to be puzzled. It should cause them to be puzzled. How, how can you operate that way? in light of the world we live in, because that's not where my heart goes. People know their hearts. They know the bent of their lives. And when they run into somebody that doesn't just let their heart control them, they, they begin to ask, what makes them tick? What, what, what is, what's going on here? What's the difference? And you get an opportunity to give the answer for the hope. Now, what I want to do this morning is, I want to specifically ask, what is the mission that we're called to do. We're distinct for a mission, but what is that mission? What is it? Look at verse 18 of the text. This is really what I want to jump out now as we go on and kind of launch out from. Listen to what Jesus said here in the text. (coughs) He said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, Jesus is speaking, Father, as you sent me, I now am sending them. Where else in John do we hear those kinds of words? Where else? Where else did you read it this morning? John 3.16, didn't you? For God so loved the world that he what? He sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God sent. What did he send? He sent Jesus, what, to the world. We better define terms, hadn't we? What, what does he mean? 
God gave his only begotten son. He sent him to the world. What, what is the definition of world? What, what do we mean by world? What does it mean when Jesus says, don't take them out of the world? And, 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 and John records also in John chapter 3, God so loved the world. See, we're in the same book. We're the same author. John is writing, and he's taking the words of Jesus. So one of the ways to get context of what it means in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world, you've got to realize that this was one book that was being written, one one account that John was writing. And so he has a thematic idea. When you write something, you hold to ideas and terms and those kinds of things. And the idea of what it means to send Jesus, we go back to John chapter 3 and we hear the same terminology. So I think we can glean a lot from John chapter 3 about what Jesus meant for him to send us into the world because he wants us to go to the world just like the Father sent him to go to the world. And the world is defined by the created and fallen totality of mankind that needs salvation. That's what the world is, the Created and fallen totality of mankind that needs salvation. If you will, the perishing people of the world. The perishing people of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not, what? Perish. In other words, the definition of the world is it's the people who are perishing. That's who we're to go to. That's part of the mission. We're to go to those perishing people. And what I want to do now for the next few moments is just look at how Jesus went to that perishing world. How the Father sent Jesus to it. How did he go? In what spirit did he go? Because we're to go the same way. You see the connection? You see the inference? As I was sent by you into the world, now, Father, I'm sending them into the world. I almost titled what I'm going to say today is by this title that Jesus so loved the world that he sent us. I think you could say that. God so loved the world. God the Father loved the world that he sent Jesus. But now the second part of that verse 18 is Jesus so loved the world that he now sends us to do the very thing that he did by being sent by the Father. So the point of the next few minutes is how did Jesus go? How was he sent? What did he do when he was sent by the Father to the world? First of all, I think God the Father sent Jesus the Son to rescue a perishing people. That was the definition of what the world is. It had to do with rescuing a perishing people. Um, Verse 18, we've, we already looked at this a bit this morning, but if chapter 3 of John, if you're there, we're going to spend considerable time there. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, the idea of condemnation, the idea of perishing. They sent, Jesus was sent so that people would not perish. People who would not be condemned and lost. That's why God sent Jesus into the world. If you will, he sent Jesus to remove God's wrath. Listen to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
That, that is the nature of a perishing person. They suppress the truth, the truth about themselves, the truth about God, the truth ultimately about Jesus. That's, that's what causes people ultimately to perish. Light has come into the world now, but they love darkness. And therefore, the result of that is to perish. Now, a bit of a sidelight here this morning. It's interesting. Jesus prayed, as we already talked about, he prayed that they would have joy. Prayed that his disciples would have joy. He prayed that his disciples would have, be sanctified or, or be distinct. And he prayed that they would fulfill a mission. Now, think of those three things. What, what is the difference about those three things? There's lots of differences, but one difference particular. I think it's important to understand is, is he prayed for joy. So why didn't he just take them to heaven? Cause that's ultimate joy, joy, un, unrestrained in the sense. I mean, he prays for joy. Well, just let him go to heaven. Cause that's what, what happens there. He prayed that they would be distinct. Well, that's a definition of everybody who's in heaven. Fully distinct, fully sanctified. Fully without sin. So he prays for them to be joyful. He prays for them to be sanctified. Just skip this part. Go to heaven. Just take them. But he doesn't do that. He prays for them not to be out of the world, not to be removed from the world. So that this joy and this, this sanctification would happen in this world why not just take them to heaven? Because there was something that couldn't be done in heaven. And that was the mission. You see, the mission that they were called to fulfill couldn't happen in heaven. The mission was about going to a perishing people that they might join them in heaven one day. It's interesting as you think about how Jesus prayed. He, he prayed that they would have joy and that they would be a distinct people so that they could fulfill a mission. You see, and part of, part of all of that has to do with the mission. It, it, the joy is about the mission. The distinctiveness is about the mission. The mission of going to a perishing people. Now, it's not all about that, but certainly in this context, it is about that. So Jesus sent them, first of all, sent, uh, or God sent Jesus to a perishing people. The second thing that he sent Jesus to is he sent him to give his life. Jesus came to die. We spent a bunch of time in Hebrews, a bunch of months, over a year in Hebrews. And the, the text in Hebrews is the reason that Jesus came, the reason he, who was fully God from all eternity past, became fully man, was for one purpose. It would take a man to die. So Jesus became fully man some 2,000 years ago so that he ultimately could die as a man. Because God could not die. So Jesus came to give his life. Um, he, and think about what he left. He left absolute perfection. We, we, we won't understand the gospel fully unless you take time to think about these things. He, he, he left perfect perfection. He left a place that was absolutely perfect comfort. He was with the Father. In fact, he's longing to go back. Remember, he, uh, he, he, his joy was he's going to be restored to that after he goes to the cross. 
And the joy of that restoration, of reconciliation, of being with the Father unhindered, is what he prayed for his disciples. He left that. He left the place of comfort, perfect comfort, to come. And, and there was nothing outside of him compelling that to happen. That's also important to know. There was nothing that compelled him to come. There was no sense in which justice demanded that he come. In other words, if God, the Son, had not been willing to fulfill his mission, that somehow he would be unjust in not fulfilling the mission to go to a perishing people. The people were perishing because they'd sinned. There was nothing about justice in that sense that, that he somehow, to fulfill all justice, had to come and give them a second chance. It wasn't about justice that he came. It wasn't something compelling him to come in that way. But it was within his heart rose up a desire to go to a perishing people. That's important to understand. That it was the initiative of God to come to a perishing people. Nothing outside of him was demanding that he do that. It rose up within. So he left perfection to die and he died for, the scripture says, people who were his enemies. He left a perfect place because he decided to do that, to come to die as a man and to die for people who were his enemies at the time he died. His enemies. So now, flip that. As the Father has sent me into the world, so I send you into the world. Same thing. Same outline, isn't it? He sent us to leave comfort, to move away from comfort, to, f- to fight the desire to protect just me, move out of those comfort zones to go to a perishing people. He, 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 he calls us to go and to give ourselves away for the sake of a perishing people. And not only a perishing people, but for our enemies. Our enemies. Who are our enemies? Who's your enemy? In one sense, in one sense, in the biblical sense, all people are the enemies of the light outside. Those, all those perishing people are enemies in one sense. I mean, they, they, they don't love the light. And so when you go as the light, there's a sense in which all people, all people outside of Christ, in one sense, are your enemy because they're opposed to the light that you bring. Everybody, fundamental level, that's a definition of a perishing person. They don't love the light. And so when the light comes and, and you're an extension of that light, there's a sense in which they are your enemies in one sense. Um, look at verse 16 of John 17 to, to bolster that. It says, um, uh, beginning verse 15, it says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so by that very definition, a people that he's praying for here are not of the world. They are distinct people. There's a sense in which all of the world's are enemies. But, but I think we'd admit some more than others. Some more than others. All are, but some more than others. And the, the question I would ask is, why is giving so hard? You know, Jesus gave. He, God sent his only son. He gave him up. He, he, Jesus gave. 
Think about it a minute. I mean, it's hard for us even when they're not our enemies. Do you just jump for joy to serve your fellow believers all the time? Somebody calls you up and you've got an agenda and they ask for you to help them and you just always jump for joy to rearrange your schedule, to inconvenience yourself, to serve those who are not your enemies, fellow believers. I think we'd have to admit we don't always do that. There's, there's impulses sometimes in us to want to not do that. So it's, it's hard sometimes to do that, to, to sacrifice to do that. Think about your own spouse. If you're married, maybe you're not married, but think about your spouse. Or maybe you think about your mom and dad. You all have moms or dads. Think about that. You just jump for joy when you're in bed, just about asleep, and your spouse says, I'm thirsty. And you jump up and say, dear, I'd love to go get you a drink of water. There's nothing make me more happier to go get you a drink of water. In fact, let me bring you two drinks of water. You understand that, don't you? I mean, there's something in us, an impulse to want, not want to do that, to not want to give. And, but that's, not, that's really not what Jesus was saying. That's not what Jesus, who Jesus went to. He didn't go to, he didn't go to those. He went to his enemies. Now, who are his enemies? Well, you see, there's different degrees of enemies, but, but enemies, some more than others. Um, in fact, in Scripture, it talks about to be careful <clears throat> to not just do the good to those who can repay you, because sometimes your enemies will repay you. I mean, unbelievers will repay you. You, you have a neighbor, he, he doesn't profess Christ. By definition of the world, he's perishing. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have Christ as his Savior. He wouldn't profess Christ as his Savior. But he's not a real bad guy. And, and uh, so you, you help him. You do something for him. You serve him. You sacrifice for him. You, you do, do something for him. But, but then the next week, he does something for you. In fact, Scripture says, don't only do those who can repay you. What profit is that? I mean, we, we all can do that. You know, I'll do this for you. You do that for me, tick for tat kind of thing. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's not tick for tat kind of thing. Jesus came to the perishing. He came to his enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, the scripture says. So who are enemies? Who did Jesus come to? He came to those who were nasty to him. He came to the person, put it in our shoes, the clerk or the businessman. Think about this. You, you, you go to a store and the, the person who waits on you is rude or the person who you check out with insults you. And we think, well, I'm not going back there anymore. Last time I go to that shop or that store or maybe, maybe a businessman who, who doesn't treat you fairly. And so you just write him off. Well, he can do that once. He won't do it to me twice. We just write them off. We just check them off. Um, that's a level of, of enemy, in a sense. Or take it farther. ISIS. Those who want to kill us as Christians. You see, there's varying degrees of enemies. And the scripture makes it very plain. While they were yet enemies, Christ died for them. He went to enemies. Don't Don't... Stop too short of what that means. He went to those who hated him. 
I just read something on Twitter yesterday. I don't, I just happen to, I don't go through my Twitter feed very often, but I went through it the other day or yesterday. And this statement, I I won't tell you who said it, but it's a, it's an individual who you'd recognize the name. He, he said this, he made this quote. He said, if you don't want your enemies to go to heaven, maybe you're not a Christian. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? It kind of stops us when we just kind of write them off when they're nasty to us at the checkout or treat us, you know, business way that's not, not right. And we just kind of write them off. Write them off. Or we see things on television in the Middle East about some horrific things, horrible things that are happening. And this individual says, if you don't want your enemies to go to heaven, maybe you're not a Christian. What, what's he mean by that? I, I think what he means is that we are called to go as the Father sent the Son, so he sends us. Not to just somebody who ruffled our feathers a little, but to our enemies, to, to go. You see the, the different, you see the, the extremeness of that. I, I remember, or the distinctness of that. I remember a number of years ago going into a friend of mine's office, Sam Crabtree. I've talked to you about Sam. Sam was a great friend, still is a friend. But I remember there was a sign in his office that was a quote by Billy Graham. Billy Graham once um, or at least an experience that Billy Graham had had. Billy Graham had an experience once where an individual came up to him and told Billy Graham that I would become a Christian. I would become a Christian if I ever met one. And I remember that in his office thinking, Sam, that's a unique quote. To think there. There's people that are Christians. But, but the point of, I think, why Sam had it was that, you see, Christianity is about distinctiveness. Real distinctiveness about, about God moving us to do things that really causes people to scratch their heads. Really causes them. I mean, we don't, we don't do something for somebody else because they're going to return the favor. That, that, everybody does that. But we start to go to those people who've, who've wronged us. I mean, Sometimes it's this small, a little slight as a clerk who looked at us cross-eyed or a businessman who didn't treat us fairly. We think we'll never go back to him again. We just write him off. Maybe God doesn't want us to write that off. You see, the distinctiveness comes when, when somebody knows they've wronged you, but you respond to that wrong differently than the world responds to that wrong. See, but that's distinctiveness. They're, they know a world that writes them off when they get burnt, doesn't put their hand on the stove a second time, doesn't take the risk of that. And then you go to things even worse, ISIS and other things that are in our world today. You see, Jesus prayed that they would be sanctified, that they would be distinct, distinct people on a distinct mission to take that distinction to the world. That's what Jesus said. It was distinct. There was no one more distinct and nobody more distinctive than Jesus, God, that God came, left a place of perfection, moved out of comfort to come to a world of enemies and die for them.
I think that's what Jesus now is sending his church to do, to go. To go to a world that needs to see a distinctiveness and needs to hear a message about Christ. And then thirdly, I think he sent him, he sent him to a perishing people. He sent him to give his life to a perishing people who were his enemies. And he sent him to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this at other times. I don't want to talk about it again. But I, I really believe that Jesus came to this world and, and, and somehow limited his, his access to his divinity. I don't think Jesus at any time was ever not fully God. He was fully God and fully man and, and will be for all eternity. It's another subject. But 2,000 years ago, he took on full humanity. And for the period of time that he was on this earth, I think he didn't access his, his uh, ability to fight sin. We've talked about this before. In other words, he lived perfectly, but it wasn't as though he had a trump card in his pocket where he could pull out his divinity. Stuff got a little too hot in the kitchen trying to resist sin, to live perfectly. So he pulls out his divinity and uses his divinity to resist sin. I think there's a sense in which Jesus never pulled it out of his pocket. He left it in his pocket. It, it wasn't that he wasn't fully God. He just didn't access the resources of being fully God to fully resist sin because it would take a man, a fully man, to resist sin. And I think the way Jesus resisted sin was by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The same way we're called to resist sin, by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But I, I say all of that to say that I think he sent Jesus to be fully dependent on God the Father through the avenue of the Holy Spirit, which is the same way he sends us. Again, the, the model, the picture, is that God sent his son. And so, the same way that he sent his son, he sends us. He sends us to go to a perishing world. A world that if they don't come to the light, will perish and it'll be horrific. He sends us to a world that are our enemies, now some to greater degrees than other, but to those who would, would, in a natural sense, oppose us coming, oppose the light, some to more degree than another. That we're to go to them, and we're to go dependent. We're to say, oh my, how, how, how can I do that? How can I live that distinctiveness in the light of, of the extremes of those enemies? How would I do that? How? Same way Jesus did. The power of the Holy Spirit. How did he go to the cross? How did he experience the horrific suffering he had on his way to the cross? By somehow pulling out his divinity? I don't think so. By dependence on the Father, by, by the Holy Spirit. He, he, he trusted the Father. He rested in the Father. So again, that's the picture. As I, as God sent me, I send them into the world. And what is the result of that? What, what happens in all of that? And we'll come to that next week if you will, but look back in John chapter 17. And there we find the, uh, the answer to that. And really, I, I take you there next week. Look at verse 20. He's talking about the prayer that he's prayed. I do not ask for these only. Who are these only? The disciples. The disciples that were right there with him when he was speaking these words. But also for those who will believe in me 
through their word. He sends us for the sake of those who will believe in him by our word. By our word, the word about Christ that is bolstered by the distinctiveness that's marked our life. The distinctiveness of what it is to be in Christ. The distinctiveness of all the things we talked about. Of of a generous people in a stingy, selfish world. A giving people in that context. A truthful people in a confused world. A joyful people in a suffering world. You see, it's a twofold thing that he prayed for his disciples. That we would be distinct. And that secondly, we would fulfill a mission. And he did it before us. I consecrate myself. I fulfill this mission. So, in fact, his fulfillment of the mission is what then gives us the power to do it as well, to follow in his steps. May God help it to be so. We're going to sing this morning a song that (coughs) that I hope will help us be an affirmation of walking in his steps. O great God of highest heaven, let's stand and sing it together. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys Then your spirit gave me life Opened up your word to me Through the gospel of your Son Gave me endless hope and peace Dependent on your grace Keep my heart and guard my soul From the evils that I face You are worthy to be praised With my every thought and deed O great God of highest heaven Glorify your name through me. Father, I pray that uh, you would fulfill your prayer in us as a people. That in fact you would cause us to be a distinctive people. But not a distinctive people and somehow for our glory. That's what it means to separate in the wrong way. Not to bring attention to us as an end in itself. To somehow bring glory to us. But that, Father, the distinctiveness that you create, it would be so obvious that that only God could do that. 
that only God could cause that to happen in a life and in a heart. And I pray, Father, that, that you will do that so that, that we can go to a world, a world that's perishing, and be able to give the answer to the hope that is within us, the, the hope that causes causes us, Father, to live in that distinctive way. Lord, I just pray that for the sake of our community here, the sake of our neighbors, and the sake of the nations, that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.